Isaiah. We will be finishing Isaiah tonight. After about six months, we have been uh, literally camped in this book, and it is uh, amazing just to see uh, not only uh, the second largest book in the Bible, but also to see how it parallels the scriptures as a whole, being 66 chapters, just like our Bible, 66 uh, books. And we are at the end, and the first two verses here that we're going to be starting with tonight really it is the theme at the end of the book of the whole book and its inclusiveness of who God is and who we are. It says in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist says the Lord, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So Father, tonight, I, I thank you so much for these verses. I thank you for the time of worship. I thank you for uh, these that, that come faithfully every single week, those of uh, the, these, my friends that are online, Lord, I ask that you would help us today, not only as we, we end this amazing book, but to see uh, how you literally sum it up in these two verses. Not, not only this, this book, the book of Isaiah, but the Bible as a whole. Your, your majesty, your holiness, your awesomeness uh, compared to who uh, we are. And yet, you come to this earth and you not only give your life for us, but you seek us out. You reach out to us. Those that are, those that in many ways don't even seek you, uh, you reach out to us. Uh, those of us that, that don't um, have that walk with you, you, you run to us. Lord, we thank you so much for your, uh, first of all, your seeking love and then your sacrificing love, Lord. We ask that you would help us to do the same to those around us, share that same love to those that maybe in our, our families tomorrow or, or maybe in our, our families this coming week or those that we're going to be uh, around with, uh, around a table or or in a, a home, Lord, I ask that you would help us to have that same attitude toward those that you have brought into our lives, Lord. I thank you so much for what you did for us. And Lord, I ask you bless these, uh, my friends and my family tonight, that all the, the preparations, all the plans that we may have for uh, this coming weekend, that you would just help us to set those things aside and to be able to concentrate upon your word. They'll, they'll still be there tomorrow. They'll still be there later on tonight but that we have the privilege of coming before you and laying down every single one of our burdens, Lord. And we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We, we started this amazing book looking at the majesty of who God is, the holy, 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 the one who is high and lifted up, who was and is and, and is to come, the one for whom the very cherubim themselves throughout all of time itself, cry out, holy, holy, holy. And then we find out that that same holy God is going to come to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to be celebrating that within, you know, a month, right? Uh, the, the coming of the Messiah here to the earth. And who does he come for? His people. The privilege of knowing that God comes to this earth for us. And in these two amazing verses, we see the whole, not only the, the plan of God, but the privilege of understanding who God is and who we are compared to uh, that God. Where is God at, by the way, from these verses? Where is God at? In heaven, right? On his throne, the only one that can sit on uh, the throne in heaven. And then just the immensity of who God is. Where is his feet? 
According to the earth, or according to these verses, it's the earth, right? It's, it's footstool. You can imagine this huge, massive chair. And of course, this is a, a picture. This is an imagery for us to, you know, be able to get a, a, just a small glimpse in our finite minds of an infinite God of how big he is to completely fill up not only the entire universe, heaven itself, earth is his footstool. And then the hilarity of trying to build that immense, awesome, majestic, holy God, some sort of a house or a place where we can come and meet him. Can you imagine that? And of course, we, this is where we meet. You know, what kind of a ceiling do we have? It's paper, right? You know, with all these wires all over the place. And thank God, at least we have a building, you know. But, but you know, you, you've probably been to nice houses of worship where, you know, literally millions and millions of dollars can be poured into a single building. And, and yes, it, it's supposed to direct your attention to God. But, you know, if you actually understand the heart of worship, it's the people that worship God. It's their hearts that are being directed toward God, despite the majesty of the building itself. And, and these verses are describing the absurdity of trying to contain God in some sort of a house of worship or a temple or a church. Because can you worship God anywhere? Yeah, you, you can worship God driving in your car praising him, thanking him for who he is. You can worship God in your closet or in your house or in, you know, even your job site. The privilege of knowing that God is with you, not because he dwells, you know, in nature or something like that, but because he dwells in you. To understand that majestic, mighty God dwells in human hearts. It continues on, and where is the place of my rest? Do you, do you understand that, you know, we can't build a house for God, but God can build a house for us? In fact, that's what Jesus told us, right? That's what Jesus told his disciples. That's what Jesus told us in the Gospels. What was he going to do for you? There a place for you, a, a mansion for you, a, a house for you in heaven. Why? So that you could live with him forever and ever and ever. Who's made everything, including the wood, including all the things that we have? It's God himself for all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. It's not the buildings, it's not the splendor of some sort of a, a place, and, and you can imagine the temple where Isaiah had the privilege of being able to minister to those that came for worship. This was King Solomon's temple. This was one of the most majestic buildings to have ever been built, literally a gold-plated uh, doors, this immaculate building, not only on the outside, but also on the inside. It was supposed to point people to the glory of God. But is that what God wants? Some sort of a building. What does he want according to the last two phrases here? He wants people whose hearts want to be in God's presence. What, what kind of people is God looking for? Rich? Talented? Good looking? You know, all, the, all the things that we like to entice, you know, certain uh, congregations into, right? We, we want to win over those that have some sort of an intelligence or, or that will some way benefit our church. Why? Because it somehow is a, you know, not, not just a contest, but you could say that you want to bring people in that will elevate your church, elevate your congregation, help it out. 
people that somehow bring, you know, not only gifts, but talents into a church that they can be used. And, and thank God for talented people. There, there's no doubting that. But who is God looking for to fill the pews? Who is God looking for to fill the congregation? It says it here. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit <clears throat> and who trembles at my word. Those first 12 disciples, what were they made up of? <clears throat> they, they were fishermen, right? One was a zealot, which means that he was, you know, gung-ho for the Jewish empire wanted to destroy the Roman empire. Another one was a tax collector who was a traitor who wanted to work or did work for the Roman empire. Can you imagine these fishermen? And you can, you can, you know, just hear the conversations, whether it's from the scriptures themselves or imagine these conversations between these disciples as Jesus is presenting to them the kingdom of God. In fact, in the very first thing that Jesus says his very first sermon here on the earth, there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he quotes these verses. The very first sermon that Jesus gives, the, the Beatitudes, there on the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus is speaking to those multitudes of people, his very first sermon, the very first read words in the book of Matthew. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and when he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in a sermon to the masses, he says this phrase. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? Going all the way back to the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. And, and not only that, but also quoting the last chapter of the book of Malachi too. Where the people are proud of heart and they, they're haughty and they're stiff-necked and they're hard-hearted, the people of Israel. And then God, 400 years later, comes down to the earth and contradicts everything that they're teaching. All the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin have been teaching the Jews. Instead, who is God looking for? Humble people. Or in Psalms chapter 51, and I know you know this verse. This is the cry, this is the prayer of David himself after he had sinned with Bathsheba. By the way, a friend of God, the Bible calls him, despite all of his sin, despite all of his mistakes, despite all of the things that he himself did wrong. In Isaiah, or in Psalms chapter 51, he says this majestic prayer, and I, I, I you know, not only encourage you to read it uh, when you get home tonight or, or this coming week, but just that one verse from verse 17, Psalms 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What kind of people is God looking for? People that are humble with broken hearts. And you can just maybe even look at your own life pre-Christ and after Christ. And there probably was a time in your life where you had to be broken. Or you had to come to that point where you realize that I can't do it myself. I need to rely upon uh, God. I need to rely upon something bigger than myself. I need Jesus Christ in my heart. All of us need to come to that same decision. And also in, in Luke chapter 4, it, it describes, and we've read this these verses before earlier, but just to kind of emphasize this same thing, this is the very first sermon that Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth, okay? 
in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. All these people knew who he was. He, he had grown up there uh, from the age of, you know, his, his early you know, childhood after they had come back from the land of Egypt. He had grown up there until the age of 30. The, these people knew him. They saw him. They knew he was the carpenter's son. He went into the synagogue on a Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet what? The same book right here. When he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of uh, the Lord, the whole book of Isaiah points people to Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Acts, there was a guy by the name of Philip. Remember Philip? He's one of the deacons, the, the second deacon that's mentioned in uh, the book of Acts. You had, you know, the first one who, who was martyred, right? Stephen. And, and then you had Philip, who gets the very next chapter. And Philip, he was just happened to be on this deserted road in the desert on between, you know, the southern part of Israel and Egypt itself. And who does he happen to come by? The Ethiopian eunuch, who was in charge of, by the way, the entire treasury of the nation of Ethiopia. This, this would have been a, a rich guy. He was traveling by chariot. He, he just happened to be reading what book in the Bible? Isaiah! Isn't that amazing? And again, Philip points him to Jesus Christ through the words of Isaiah. The privilege of understanding that not only the book of Isaiah, but every single one of the Old Testament books point people to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ fulfills all these prophetic events and that he reaches out to those that are poor, contrite, and tremble at the word of God. Now, unfortunately, in our language, we kind of, you know, can misunderstand these words. This word, uh, poor here and and you know we we kind of associate this with monetary means right you know how much money is in your bank account right uh, but this is referring to in a spiritual sense you're poor spiritually you you may not know a single thing about the church you may not know a single thing about god you may not know a single thing about spiritual matters and does God reach out to you? Yes. Or, or a contrite heart. And this is another word that we, we don't really use uh, that often. Uh, but the understanding is that contrite is, uh, is synonymous with meek, okay? And meekness isn't, you know, a, a synonym of, of weakness. And meekness actually means, you know, strength under control. To know the one who holds all strength. And I can't do anything on my own. I can't control any of my own circumstances. But I know the one that holds the future in his hands. Who does control all circumstances. And then the last phrase there trembles at my word. Now, are you willing to obey what you hear on a Sunday morning? Are you willing to obey in a devotional that you read from the scriptures? Are you willing to obey what God reveals to you? Are you willing to put your needs underneath the needs of God? Because God in his word speaks to us very, very clearly. And are you willing to obey it? Are, are you willing to put that before your own self? 
whether as it says here, trembles at my word or receives the word willingly and is willing to do it right away. Not procrastinating obeying the word of God, but instead making it a priority in our lives. This, of course, is contrasted in the next two verses here. The, the standard, of course, that God is looking for are those that are poor in spirit, contrite hearts, tremble at the word of God. But what are the people like living at this time? Verses 3 and 4, he who kills a bull as if it is, slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. The contrasting idea here is you can either follow me or you can follow your own delusions. And unfortunately, many, many people come to church with their delusions in hand. That their, you know, idea of what church should look like. It's the delusions of the religion that we live in, especially even in America. You see, the people of Israel, they were delusional in their giving. Oh, oh God will accept this, you know, uh, lamb or this turtle dove or this, you know, uh, animal that is unclean. Uh, or, or they'll come as if they do not have a repentant heart. They just want to come as a show to their friends and their neighbors. Look how much I give. Look what I've done for God, right? It's the delusion. Unfortunately, you know, in our society, we don't, you know, sacrifice things, but can we be just as delusional? <clears throat> I, I gave to the church this amount of money, right? Or, or we use the church as a country club, or, or we use the church for contacts, or we use the church for our own political or monetary gain, what, what can I get out of uh, the church? Is that why we come to church? So that we can get things from other people? No, I'm, I'm grateful for coming to a church where we, you know, and, and this is a small church, by the way, but you guys give and give and give and give. Whether it's together we can or tomorrow with the Thanksgiving uh, lunch or whether it's those that work in our children's ministry, without, I mean, with any ac without any accolades whatsoever, those people over there are absolutely amazing. Or the people that work in the back, or the people that clean these floors every single Friday, the men that come in here, or those that just serve in our, you know, whether it's helping people move or, or serving people throughout the church, without any form of recognition whatsoever. It all goes on behind the scenes. People that love uh, to give. It also continues there in verse 4. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes, and they chose that in which I do not delight. What's the difference between someone that's humble and someone that's proud? The humble will surrender their will to God. And the proud says, I want to do what I want to do. And everybody else has to conform to my thought process. Everyone else has to conform to how I view things. But the humble surrenders themselves to God. You see, this is a false liturgy and a wrong worship. When I come to church and say, this is how it should be. Rather than being humble before an almighty God. This is again uh, kind of drawn out in the next couple of verses here. I love what it says in verse 5 again. 
reiterating the same exact uh, verses, verse one and two. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his words. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery? Says the Lord. Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb? Says your God. The plans of God will come to fruition. The, the plans of God will be uh, birthed. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, the same thing is repeated there in the New Testament. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What do we call someone who has been converted to Christianity? They're in John chapter 3. What does Jesus describe this transformation of a person who was once dead and now to a person who is alive? What is that called? Born again, right? And Jesus used that same illustration that Isaiah is using here in, you know, the conversation that he has with Nicodemus. What does he say? Unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of heaven, right? And then, of course, Nicodemus, in his, you know, human mind, even though he is a teacher of the Jews, what does he say? Can a person crawl up into his mother's womb again? That's exactly what he says. And Jesus says, are you a teacher of the Jews? You've been teaching the Old Testament for decades. You're, you're a leader of the Jews and you don't understand these things? And where does he take him to? Isaiah. He shows him from the scriptures how God transforms and gives new life to a person. And of course, you have John 3.16 in those verses as well. Verse 10 and 11 says, Rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles shall flow stream, and then you shall feed on her side, shall you be carried and be dondled on her knee, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted in uh, Jerusalem. You see, from the very beginning of the foundation of Israel itself, Abraham was given a commission by God. And what was that commission? To be a blessing to the nation. The Gentiles, those that were not of his own blood, those that weren't going to be Israelites or Jewish. The, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the Gentiles. Unfortunately, just like many Christians today, what did they do with those blessings? They kept them for themselves, right? But God is saying, the Gentiles will flow into you like a stream. The Gentiles will be blessed. In fact, the Gentiles will be the focus of Jesus Christ himself after the Jews have rejected him. Verse 14, and when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger and with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, 
the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the earth, or the slain of the Lord shall be many. Let those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says uh, the Lord. And just like the Bible as a whole, what's the very last book in the book or in the Bible itself? You know it. The Revelation, right? And what's going to happen to those that are going to be cast out? What will it be like? The Bible says it's going to be like brimstone. Where, where you literally heal, hear the welling of those around you that are being burned forever and ever and ever. This place that wasn't reserved for human beings. It was reserved for uh, Satan and his angels. But because human beings reject Jesus Christ, the punishment, of course, will be uh, severe. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come, and they will see my glory. I will set a sign among them, those among them who escape. I will send to the nations the Tarshish and Fool and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. The great missionary journeys. In fact, this is exactly what happens when those 120 people that are up in that upper room receive uh, the Spirit of God upon them as, as flames of fire on their heads. The very next day, Peter stands up, and what does he say? He gives this amazing sermon, and 3,000 souls are saved. These are people that didn't normally live in Jerusalem. They had come from other nations. They, they spoke other languages, and they were able to hear the gospel in their own language. And then what did those people do? They went back to their homelands. Of course, Peter, he goes out throughout Jerusalem. And then Philip, he goes to Samaria, just like what the Great Commission says, Judea and Samaria. And then, of course, Paul, Barnabas, Jean-Luc, or John, John, you know, uh, John Mark, excuse me, John Mark, and then, of course, Titus and Timothy, they go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Mediterranean region where these nations are, by the way. Uh, that, that amazing circuit that Paul would take three different times of the Mediterranean Ocean. Presenting the glory of God to the Gentiles themselves. Verse 20 then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations on horses and in chariots and litters, on mules and on camels. And to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Do you know what this is saying? That the Gentiles will get to serve God. That the Gentiles will be part of the worship ceremony of God. Guess what? That happens on, in church. That, that's what happens in our church. That's what happens in churches all around the world where Gentiles actually get to worship God and teach the Bible, teach Old Testament things to Gentiles who have no idea who the Jewish people or their history or their language and get teach it to those that's what we get to do here the last three verses whereas the new heavens and the new earth which i will make shall remain before me says the lord so shall your descendants and your name remain revelation chapter 21 revelation chapter 22 the last two verses of the bible what do they describe? A new heaven and a new earth. Predicted even way back here in the Old Testament itself. To understand that the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create isn't a plan B. 
but it's always been in the heart of God. That that earth that God created there in those seven days, or six days, and in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve dwelt, knowing that that same place, that same earth, the earth where we live now, will one day be consumed with fire. And we'll be given a new earth, a new heaven. And guess what we also get? New bodies too, right? Isn't that amazing? But not only that, verse 23, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. You understand that privilege. There are people that are humble. People that you don't even know. People from every single nation, tribe, and language represented there before the very throne room of God. And all worshiping God united. Oh, what a choir that will be. Oh, what a voice that will sound like. To understand that we get the privilege of worshiping God forever and ever. And, and by the way, you know, every single moment will be better than the moment before. There will be no boredom. There will be no lack of, of, of want or need. Verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the man who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. And just like in the book of Revelation, the warning is also there. And just like, you know, in the Gospels as well, when Jesus, yes, he came to bring peace, but he also came to give a warning as well. The exact same words that are used here where worm does not die and fire is not quenched is also in the Gospels themselves. Spoken by Jesus himself. Warning. And would I ever want anyone that I know to go to that place? We have the perfect privilege on, you know, tomorrow when you're surrounded by family. Maybe people that you know, or you call friends or people that you hang out with. Can you share the love of Jesus Christ with those people? The, the privilege of understanding that you have the truth and that we can share it to those uh, around us. The book of Isaiah, 66 chapters long, comes to an end with a warning. But it also comes to end with a promise as well. And what is the promise of God? That he wants you to be with him. Forever and ever and ever and ever. And the privilege of being able to share that with those around us. Now, of course, we're in the, what are called the, the major prophets, the, the prophets that are long, you know, the, Isaiah is 66 chapters, and, and Jeremiah is 52 chapters, and Ezekiel is 48 chapters, and Daniel is 12 chapters. All four of these books are considered what are called the, the major prophets, and, and not because their, their content is any better than the minor prophets, it's just because of the size of these books. There's four of these books. Jeremiah, the next book that we'll be hopefully able to start uh, next week, we're going to go through a, a short introduction tonight on the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was actually written uh, fourth out of all of these major prophets. Isaiah, of course, was written first, but Daniel was actually written after the very fall of Israel itself. After Jerusalem fell, it was Daniel that was led out first. And then it was Ezekiel that was led out second. And Jeremiah was actually written last of all these major prophets. In fact, it's Jeremiah who out of all of these books, in fact, out of all the books of the Bible, has a first-hand view of the destruction of not only Jerusalem itself, 
but of that majestic temple, King Solomon's temple. To watch as the gold is literally stripped from the doors. Where the temple is destroyed. Where the walls are torn down. Where, where people are starving in the streets because of the siege that the Babylonian army has brought to Jerusalem. And even as we see in the book of Jeremiah, the destructive nature of what it's like to go through a siege, where literally people are roasting their food over dung, and they're looking for any form of food. And in Jeremiah, you even have the practice of women having, because they're just so hungry, eating their own babies after they've died. Just the horrific nature of what goes on in starvation. And Jeremiah is there. The whole time he's there. He doesn't get taken to Babylon like Daniel does. He doesn't get taken to Babylon like Ezekiel does. He doesn't get to serve in the upper echelons of the Babylonian empire like Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Misael, what we commonly call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he didn't get to go to the colleges in Babylon. He didn't get to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't get to serve the, the kings and queens of Babylon. He didn't get to eat the nice food. He didn't get to be like Ezekiel living beside a river with all those blue-collar workers, the Israelites that were taken over second, uh, those, those people that had some sort of a trade skill that the Babylonians used as their labor in Babylon. Instead, Jeremiah is left with the riffraff, with the poor, with the people that are rejected even by their enemies as people that have no talent whatsoever. Uh, people that have to, you know, live literally from hand to mouth. These people are the leftovers. This is all that's left in the time of Jeremiah. There's a puppet king on the throne. And someone that Babylon had chosen to rule over the nation of Israel at this time, the city of Jerusalem. They were literally being taxed to the very core of who they were. They had tried to later on, you know, make an alliance with Egypt. We're going to see that as well. Oh, maybe Egypt will save us. But unfortunately, Egypt her turns tail and runs after they get their payments. And all that's left within the city are those that are just literally living with rags. The stench. People are starving to death. This is what it's like in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah also is the only one of all the prophets from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. The only one of all the prophets to write two books. He writes Jeremiah, and the very next book after the book of Jeremiah, that, that little book that's most often included with the book of Jeremiah, is not normally considered a, a separate book, but it's actually uh, included in Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah is the saddest of all the books in the Bible, including, you know, the book of Lamentations included in that. You see, Jeremiah had to go through some of the most horrific times in all of the history of Israel. And he had to see it firsthand and he had to live amongst the people. And he had to say, don't surrender. Don't give up. Or as you know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Where does that verse come from? Jeremiah. Or that amazing verse in Lamentations chapter 3, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope, right? The Lord's loving kindnesses will never cease. His mercies never fail. They are new every single morning. 
written in the saddest books in the whole Bible. That, that form, that nugget of hope, that kernel of truth in the midst of horrific times. And many times we just take those things out of context. We put them on our refrigerators and we, you know, say, oh, for the, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We're going to get to see it in context. We're going to get to see the loving kindnesses of God in the midst of Jeremiah literally sinking down in a pit as his own people reject his message. And the people are starving in the streets because the leadership within Israel doesn't want to repent or change their ways. Jeremiah wrote two of the books of the Bible. The book of Jeremiah also, and more vividly than any of the other books of the Bible, it reveals the struggles that a prophet of God has to go through. We, we don't know what our pastors have to go through many times. They, they oftentimes have to, you know, do those struggles, those prayers, those hardships in private. But do you understand that we have a privilege as the people of God to lift up our pastors in prayer? To lift up those that are in leadership over us in prayer. Because they go through not only horrific challenges, but also they have to make hard decisions that they know most of the people won't like. Or the decisions that they make, you know, will cause people even to leave the church. I've seen it in our own church. Where, where those decisions that have to be made cause a division amongst people. Jeremiah is going to go through that. And it's not just going to be people leaving. It's going to be people saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. Put him in prison. Let him sink in that pit until he dies. It's going to be that bad because Jeremiah has to speak the truth. Jeremiah has to speak the word of God. And just like Isaiah, what we saw at the very beginning where the angel comes and he puts that coal on Isaiah's mouth. He says, your lips are cleansed. The preparation of a prophet, Jeremiah is going to start out much the same way in the very first chapter. Jeremiah ministered for 40 years, and he saw the destruction of Jerusalem firsthand. He doesn't get carried away into exile. He has to go literally in exile to Egypt itself. He, he has to run with all those other remnant, approximately 4,000 people that have to flee after the city is destroyed. And he has to run to a foreign country, the nation of Egypt. Jeremiah's name literally means whom Jehovah has appointed. The, the one that Jehovah has called. Can you imagine being chosen, not, not for a you know, a, a time that is, you know, bountiful and plentiful, but being chosen to minister in one of the worst times in all of the history of Israel. And you have to be faithful. You have to be the one that gives hope to a people that are hopeless. You have to show loving kindness and mercy to a people that in every single way, in every part of their lives, don't want to receive it. They, they, they in, in no way want to listen to Jeremiah's words. And above all that, Jeremiah is young. In fact, in the very first part of this uh, first chapter, we kind of get a little bit of the history of who Jeremiah is. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. He descended from the priests. 
not those that served in the temple, not those from the line of Aaron, but from the line of Levi, those that were the servants, those that were uh, the ones that kind of took care of the everyday managing of the various temple and the synagogues throughout the nation of Israel. In fact, in this area, we see that he's actually in the small tribe of Benjamin. In 722 BC, 10 of the tribes are literally scattered to the far ends of the world. The nation of Assyria comes in, Reuben, Gad, Simeon, Levi, all these other tribes in the north, they are taken captive. They're scattered amongst the Assyrian empire. There's only two tribes that are left as, as tribes as a whole. Now, of course, there's, there's people that are from the other tribes. They're just kind of living amongst these two tribes. And the southern kingdom, of course, was called Judah, that, uh, the kingly tribe, the one from which David came from. The, the ones who reigned over the rest of the tribe, the tribe of Judah. But there was also another tribe that was there too. That was the tribe of Benjamin. And you guys remember Benjamin, right? Benjamin was the youngest, right? He, he was the one that was his dad's favorite, you know, the one after Joseph whom they thought was dead. His dad was, you know, didn't even want him to leave his sight. But it was also from the tribe of Benjamin where the first king came from. Remember the first king of Israel? Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And of course, in the New Testament, there was another guy by the name of Saul who was also from the tribe of Benjamin, right? His name was later, you know, changed to Paul, of course. Where he, where he brags, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. The youngest of all the tribes. The tribe that was blessed as a young lion by Abraham himself to his own kids. So Jeremiah is living amongst the Benjamites as a priest. And in verse 2, it says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. This would have been close to the time when Josiah is about ready to be killed. You see, can you imagine this? Not only is Jeremiah going to get to see the destruction of Jerusalem itself, but you're going to get to see the downfall of the, God, the last godly king in the nation of Judah, Josiah. That young boy who was made king, who went out to war against the Egyptians, and an errant spear lands right in his chest. And he's taken back to Jerusalem, and there's no more good kings after him. It's just downfall after that. His nephew, his grandson come on the throne and all their decisions are bad. Jeremiah gets to see that. In verse 3, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Jeremiah is there at the very end. Now, this isn't a seasoned man. This isn't a seasoned prophet. In fact, in the next couple of verses as we end tonight, we see who Jeremiah was. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, this is Jeremiah speaking. Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. This is a young, untrained man who's given this heavy responsibility, not knowing if he can actually bear it up, not knowing if he can carry it. Can you imagine that? But does God know that Jeremiah can carry it? And when did God know? When did God know? 
when he was still in his mother's womb. Isn't that amazing? Just like John the Baptist. Just like Moses, by the way. In fact, Moses says this very same excuse in the book of Exodus. And he's 80 years old. Remember Moses? That burning bush? What is his excuse before God? I, I stutter, God. I can't speak, God. And what does God say? Well, I'll send your brother with you, okay? Your younger brother, by the way, who's going to help you speak to the people of Israel, the nation that has been chosen by me. And what does God do, whether it's an 80-year-old or a person who's in their teens? It's the same God with the same strength, with the same words. And what does he do? He strengthens Jeremiah even in his youth. Verse 7, we'll end it here. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. As Paul challenges Timothy in the New Testament, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness, right? Don't, don't let anyone look down on, on your age. Because you can be even more mature than someone four times your age or even five times your age if you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. Maturity is not a sign of age. It's a sign of your walk with God. As it says here as we finish up, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces. And guess what? They're going to be in his face. If you've already read ahead, or hopefully you will read ahead this coming week, you will see that people are going to get in Jeremiah's face. Priests that are much older than him. Kings that are much stronger than him. Uh, people that are more numerous than him will be getting in his face. Because they don't like the words that he's saying. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Who is on your side? Who is on your side? God is. We just have to speak his words. And guess what? You've heard this message today. And it's going to be tested this week. I guarantee you. Maybe tested as soon as tomorrow. But, but can you put your trust in God? That he will give you the right words to say. Can, can you pray now or tonight and say, Lord, please prepare the way before me tomorrow. Please, please prepare the way before me this week. That you would give me the right words to say. And guess what? Jesus Christ in the New Testament promises this, by the way. That the Holy Spirit will give you the exact words at the exact time to say to someone as a defense for his word. You may not know all the answers. You may just have a couple of words or even a verse. But can that one verse topple down the strongest of wills? Yes, it can. And of course, praying for that person as well. So read ahead the, the you know, this amazing book of, of Jeremiah. I mean, it, it will, it, it will, you know, crush your heart at times. What Jeremiah has to go through. It, it, it will help you to see the, the hardships of being a person that has to do the will of God. And hopefully it'll give you a, a not only an empathy, but, but uh, uh, may, maybe even a sympathy for those in, you know, leadership within the church. Because they have to deal with a lot of these things and they can't, you know, talk about it. They can't brag about it or boast about it or gossip about it because they have to have the high standards of, and wrestling with these things behind the scenes, just like uh, Jeremiah uh, does. 
So read ahead. I know you will be blessed uh, to do it. Come back uh, next week. We will get into this uh, amazing uh, book of Jeremiah. And God bless you as you um, uh, enjoy your Thanksgiving and be grateful for what God has done uh, for you in your life. And so, Father, tonight as we uh, come before you, and I, I thank you, I do. I thank you, first of all, for you, who you are, your awesomeness, your holiness, this amazing book of Isaiah that we finished tonight that truly just uh, challenges us in our theology, challenges us in our view of you and your majesty and in your holiness. And then as we uh, go into this next book of Jeremiah, just the understanding of a person who is literally uh, just ripped apart day in and day out because of his faithfulness to you and having to deal with a, a people that do not want to hear the truth. And so, Lord, uh, for those of us that are here, those of us that are online, those, those of us that may, may listen to this later, I ask a, a blessing upon them whether it's tomorrow at Thanksgiving or this weekend for Thanksgiving or, or maybe even next week when they go back to work, that, that you would give them the right words to say, no matter what age they are, no matter what authority they may have in their sphere of influence, that, that you can use even the youngest to speak truth. That you can use those who have no authority to bring about a change within the authority structure, that you can, in amazing ways, use those of us that have in no way to eloquently speak. And yet you use people like that all the time because they're just willing to teach. They're just willing to talk. They're just willing to share your word. And so, Lord, use us this week, Lord. I thank you so much that you look out for those that are poor and contrite and tremble at your word, the humble, that you're looking for those type of people and that you bless them and that you use them for your glory. As we pray tonight, in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless.